Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. This weekend marks Taiwan's presidential elections. Veteran China analyst Mark O'Neill has shared with me such a fascinating story of the mainland and Taiwan. I hope you'll forgive me if I slip across the border for this Hong Kong Heritage program. In 1933, the then president of China, Chiang Kai-shek, decided to move a collection of treasures from the museum at the Forbidden City in Beijing to save them from the invading Japanese Imperial Army. And so began a dramatic journey of more than a decade, as more than 7,000 crates of porcelain, silk tapestries, jade, calligraphy, and documents dating back hundreds of years were moved out of the capital and south. Mark O'Neill has written a book about the story of that journey, called "The Miraculous History of China's Two Palace Museums." Chiang Kai-shek spent two years in the Imperial Japanese Army as, as a young man, so he knew very well the military might of the Japanese. He knew the fact that his army and the Chinese, the different Chinese armies at that time, were no match for them. So. After their conquest of Manchuria, the Japanese army crossed the Great Wall and started to move into northern China, and it was clear that they wouldn't be able to hold Beijing. So they took this very radical decision to move a large number of what they considered the best pieces out of Beijing to save them from possible capture by the Japanese. And this was a milestone decision because. The items had never left the palace in Beijing, let alone the city. None of the staff wanted to do it because it was such a momentous thing. If you were in charge of the shipment and anything happened, be it a natural disaster, rainstorm, bandits attacked the train, took the items, there was a mishap, you would be responsible. So the the, the staff at the museum regarded these pieces as the sort of embodiment of China's history and culture. And their value is inestimable. So some of these artifacts, of course, are or items are、uh, hundreds of years old, have never been moved from the Forbidden City, and now are on the move.、Uh, this is back in the 1930s as a result of Chiang Kai-shek's decision to move them to safety. Can we look at some of the items themselves?、Um, what are we talking? We're talking Ming vases, or well, the the, the items in the palace have been there. I mean, not just the Qing Dynasty, which was the one that was overthrown in 1911, but earlier dynasties had all the items were there. So they made their selection amongst all of these things, and so there was a very wide variety of items. There was calligraphy, there was vases, there was bronzes, there were a lot of documents also. There was porcelain. They tried to move what they thought were the best items and a very large variety of items. So these all had to be put into crates, and、um, they had to use the advice of people in Beijing, the art dealers in Beijing, the people who、uh, who would sell art to foreigners and then ship it overseas, because the people in the museum had never done this before. So they had to get the advice of these people, and they were put in these crates. And then、um, many people in Beijing objected to this. First of all, it's 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 taking these things out of the palace. And secondly, it's a sort of it's a betrayal of them because if you believe the city is going to fall, why do you move objects, but not us, not the people? So、uh, there were public demonstrations against it, and they had to do the operation in the middle of the night、um, with military escort the whole way and put them on this train. 
and then the train left uh, Beijing Station, and it had military personnel on every single carriage. It had people, uh, soldiers on, on the roof with machine guns, and it was then the train left Beijing and 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 went to to Nanjing. So, what year is that? This is February nineteen. 19- 33. Yes, because it was an extraordinary time. I mean, Mark, of course, you've uh, been involved in um, writing books about China and China political analysis for for, uh, three decades and more. But um, in terms of that period, can you explain to me also what's happening? You've got, of course, the Japanese Imperial Army. You've now got a puppet emperor as such. Yes, well, the Japanese had put Puyi who was the former occupant of the palace. He's now the emperor of Manchu Guo. As you say, he's a puppet. He follows the Japanese orders. And it's pretty plain that Japan intends to uh, take over large parts of China. So um, Chiang Kai-shek and the, the Kuomintang leadership are expecting this. So, um, as I say, he, he knows his military not capable of defeating them. So if he's going to defeat them, he needs the help from outside – and the only country likely to do that is the United States. Well, as you know, it's in, in isolationist mode at that time. So the outlook for the Chinese leadership is very bad. Not only that, but the, the country has only been a republic for about 20 years, and even in that time, not really a unified republic. So in different regions, there are different warlords who have their own armies, their own allegiances, and the Japanese are extremely skillful. They have very good intelligence. They know exactly uh, who has what arms, uh, how strong they are, what they are personally, and the Japanese make deals with these various warlords. So this weakens China's position even worse. So it makes the story of the art treasures even more remarkable because the the overall environment is extremely unstable. Nobody knows what's going to happen. The outlook is grim. So, okay, you move the items out of Beijing, fine. You, 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 you sort of save them from Beijing. But what happens then? I mean, where, you, where do you put them? Where's going to be safe? Do you have the, the, the facilities, the buildings, the staff, the security to keep them safe? And for how long? Nobody, nobody knew this. So that makes the, 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 the start of this odyssey even more dramatic. I'm talking to Mark O'Neill, the author of The Miraculous History of China's Two Palace Museums. Yes, it is extraordinary. I mean, I've got that image in my head of this sort of steam train leaving Beijing with all these breakables on board and this armed escort uh, just trying to protect these items that have never moved from the Forbidden City and, of course, the value of what was on board and, and how fragile it was. So at that time, Chiang Kai-shek has decided to move it out of Beijing. Did they know when they were boarding that train, when they were putting these items on, where they were going to take them to? Well, the, the man in charge of the shipment was told to take them to Nanjing, which was the national capital at that time. But when he got to Nanjing, he discovered that the government hadn't decided where to put them. There were two views in the government. One was that the the Shanghai foreign concession would be the best place because the Japanese were less likely to attack an area that was controlled by foreigners. The other opinion was that that was an enormous loss of face for China and that they should be put in the interior. So Xi'an or Luoyang, you know, in the center of China. Uh, The other argument for that was that uh, if Japan was going to attack China, then it would attack Shanghai. Well, it already attacked Shanghai. So uh, in the long term, Shanghai was not a safe place. So the the man in charge of the shipment, who's called Wu Ying, arrives in Nanjing. He thought he'd 
completed his mission, and then he discovered they they hadn't decided where to put it. So the pieces sit in the railway yard for two weeks. And can you imagine what Mr. Wu is going through? They're just sitting there. He has to hire soldiers to guard them. He has to pay for the soldiers to guard them. And, of course, anything could happen in a railway yard. Criminals in Nanjing could learn of it and mount an attack, could bribe the soldiers. Uh, there could be an accident in the railway station. So this lasted for two weeks, and finally the government said it should go to, to Shanghai. So they were put on a, um, uh, a special ship, and they were taken to, to Shanghai. And there they were put in a um, Catholic church. I think it's probably the Catholic cathedral, which is still standing there. And there they had uh, vaults which were suitable. So most of them were put in there, and then there were, it wasn't quite big enough, so some were put in some company headquarters. But then the problem comes that this is not Chinese territory. This is under foreign control. So if the government wants to, to send Chinese police or uh, officials to guard the pieces, they have to get the permission of the, the, the municipal government, the foreign-controlled municipal government. Which is who at this time? Uh, if it's the French concession, that would be the French. So then they said, well, we're, what we'll do is we'll build in Nanjing a special uh, warehouse for them. So that's what they did. They built it very quickly. So this is not really a museum. It's a, a warehouse, but a very modern one. So it's it's got all the uh, the right safety features. It's got the right air conditioning features. I mean, all the things you need in a modern museum to keep the items uh, in a good condition and not be affected by the weather or the damp or anything. Yes, because, I mean, obviously in Beijing, that's a very dry environment. All of a sudden, they're moving south into more humid environments. So there's all sorts of conditions. I mean, I can imagine, you know, you've got this, uh, you know, uh, man who, as you say, has been looking after these artefacts, a kind of uh, uh, administrator at the museum or mm. the Forbidden City. He's never ever anticipated that his role now is going to ensure that humidity isn't going to affect these artefacts. Also, all of the aspects of war. And it's not just a case of could they be attacked, could they be stolen, but just the lack of supplies also. Once they're on the move and all of these situations are happening, can they get sufficient railway carriages? Can they get an engine to put at the front of the train? Uh, so um, you've got all of these various aspects. And ultimately, do you keep the collection together or do you take your chances? Well, so they, they built this warehouse very quickly in Nanjing. That was, that, they did that well, and the items were put in there, and that, they, they were quite safe in there. But then the, the Japanese attack uh, China on all fronts. So they attack in, in Shanghai, Shanghai Falls, I mean, with, with horrific loss of blood. I mean, Chinese res resistance was heroic, but they didn't have enough artillery, um, uh, jets, and so forth. So... Suddenly, then, they face the likelihood that Nanjing will fall as well. Now, you face with the prospect that the Japanese army are going to be here in a matter of weeks, and we've got to move the items again. Nadja Liang was a worker um, who joined quite young with the museum in the Forbidden City in, in Beijing. He proceeds to stay with these artefacts, with the, with the museum as it becomes for the next uh, 70 years. He describes um, in your book how um, the difficulties that they were facing moving the pieces from Nanjing was a very difficult task, he says. And then just the logistics. I mean, it's, you know, you've got um, them laying straw on um, in railway carriages and uh, as soon as someone said a train was coming, they loaded the crates until the moment it departed. So it was that 
from November the 20th to December the 8th, and this is 1937, they were able to move more than 7,000 crates. So in total, there are 7,288 crates put on these trains um, and uh, moved with a military escort. So these artefacts that have gone from Beijing have ended up in Shanghai, moved from Shanghai to Nanjing, are off again. And they first go to uh, Shuzhou. And where's that? Well, that's to the west. There were three routes out of Nanjing. So uh, some went by rail, some went by ship, some went by road. Oh, so uh, it goes up the Yangtze. So, yeah, some went by the Yangtze, some went south to Changsha. And the, the Changsha story is particularly dramatic because uh, they went to Changsha, they found what they thought was <coughs> a good storage place, which was in the university there. So the pieces were moved from Nanjing to this storehouse. And then the government got intelligence that the Japanese would bomb Changha, Changsha the next day. So the order came that you've got to move the pieces now. So army trucks arrived, the pieces were, stored, were put on these trucks, the trucks were driven away, this was all in the middle of the night. And the next morning, yes, the Japanese bombers came and it was a terrible attack. Um, hundreds of people were killed, yes. buildings were destroyed, but none of the pieces was damaged. That's quite a miracle. Well, it's both a miracle, but it also tells us about the priority which the government gave to the pieces, that they considered them so important, that they moved them uh, in this dramatic way whilst you know, not evacuating people, the, 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 all the citizens of uh, Changsha. What attracted you as a writer, first of all, to this story? Well, uh, I was in Beijing for about 13 years, so we often went to the palace museum there, and I met a man there called Wu Zuguang, who was a writer. And his father is called Wu Ying, and Wu Ying is in the book. So he told me about his father, Wu Ying. So I had an idea, and his father, Wu Ying, adored the Palace Museum. He had 10 years there. It was the best 10 years of his life. He was a complete intellectual, 100% intellectual. He loved just being near all these pieces. But the moment of enlightenment actually came in, in Taipei when I was interviewing the lady who was the director of the... Taipei Palace Museum, the National Palace Museum, and she was Zhou Gongxin, and it was she who described to me what we're talking about, this, this story. I'd heard fragments of it, but I'd never heard it put in this way. And I, I thought to myself, this is an incredible story. And uh, I hadn't read it, not in the English language. And the reason we put M Miraculous in the title was that I asked her how it was that all these pieces had this 13-year odyssey uh, ended up in Taiwan and none was broken or stolen or, 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 or damaged by uh, flooding or something. And she's a devout Catholic, so she said it was protection of God. So after meeting this lady and hearing her account, I thought I must try to do this. Now they move on, um, as you've been describing, on to um, Shuzhou, and uh, what happens then? As you say, they're now um, the, the artifacts are being transported in three different ways by this stage. Um, was that just logistics of what was available, or was that to increase the options or, or the possibility that some of this stuff would survive? Well, the the decision was made to move the items to near where the central government moved, which was Chongqing in the in the southwest. But to get from Nanjing to these places was extremely difficult. There were no railways in that area. Uh, the roads were poor. 
um, we're in the middle of a, a war. So th- tens of thousands of people are moving in the same direction. So they're all competing for boats and buses and trucks. So it was an extraordinary odyssey to move these pieces from Nanjing to these to these uh, places in these in these remote areas. And this is where Mr. Nair and his other colleagues they were cr- critical because they stayed with the pieces all the time. Um, they're like members of their family. Wherever the pieces were, they slept there. When they found the final place to keep them in 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 Sichuan or Guizhou, then they would make an office there and then they would sleep there and they would inspect the pieces every day. Now, in 1937, of course, it's a year of absolute tragedy. You've got the rape of Nanking. Um, and, uh, it, but, yeah, in the midst of all this chaos and tragedy, not only are you, you've got these people who are absolutely dedicated to trying to save these artefacts, and, I mean, amongst those, you're talking, you know, tapestry, silk tapestries from the Song and Yuan dynasties, jade artefacts, paintings, bronze artefacts for a normal museum under normal circumstances. Uh, even today, it would be a huge undertaking. Um, and so right in the middle of this, they decide to organise an exhibition. Well, the, the, this is also extraordinary. Um, um, in, before the, the all-out Japanese war, they had a big exhibition in London, and it was a huge success. The king came, tens of thousands of spectators came. And this was a time when you know China was not well respected in the world. Its revolution had not been a success and Chinese had a great sense of inferiority. But when all the foreigners went to, to the exhibition and saw these items, then, of course, your feeling changes instantly because the quality of the art is so good. And then you ask, when does this come from? And it's from the Tang Dynasty, which is in the 8th century. Well, then we said, well, what were we doing in the, in the Tang Dynasty? What were we making? Could we make anything approaching this? Well, of course, we couldn't. So it was a very important symbol of the country. So a big one was held in London, and then during the war they held one in uh, Moscow because the Soviet Union also wanted to, to have one. So this, uh, I agree with you, it's extraordinary this was still held because you've got to move the items by air from China, it went to Lanzhou, and then a plane to Almata, and then from Almata to, to Moscow, and it was held in Moscow. So I think if I'd been prime minister, I said, well, let's wait till the war is over. But they thought we should do this. Uh, so, yes, and it was a great success. And tens of thousands of people there saw, saw it. Yes, and you've also got some photographs here of the visitors who are seeing the pieces at the Moscow exhibition along with some of the staff. So um, now taking the story forward, these Thousands of valuable items are on the move throughout mainland China throughout this tumultuous time, uh, uh, one where many, many millions would, would die. I must say one thing. The Japanese did not steal items. I mean, it, this is really extraordinary. I mean, in, in, in Europe, as you know, the Nazis uh, took over countries and one of the first things they did was they pillaged the, the museums, the private homes, the galleries of art pieces, and they took them back to Germany. But the Japanese didn't do that. So they occupied Beijing and Nanjing for uh, more than eight years. So they completely had the opportunity, but they didn't do it. They removed a few pieces from Beijing which were copper because they were going to turn them into, into munitions. But that was all. So... It's very ironic to say it, but actually <laughs> it wasn't necessary to move them because the Japanese didn't take them. So 
I asked the, the, the current director in, in Taipei why this was, and she said, well, it's because the Japanese considered that they had conquered uh, Beijing and Nanjing, and these places now belong to the Japanese Empire, and therefore it, it, it belonged to them, so there's no need to move it. And the second point is that the Japanese army in China was not defeated. Japan was defeated because of the American army and the, the two atomic bombs. But in China itself, the Japanese army wasn't defeated. So the mindset of the Japanese commanders in China would be, would be different. Um, so that's the first point I want to make. The second point is um, Chiang Kai-shek, when he moved to Taiwan, could not take all the pieces with him. Because the situation now is even more dramatic. That is to say, he's losing the civil war to the communists. He's made the decision to move his government to Taiwan. On the mainland, there's tens of thousands of people who are afraid of the communists and also want to escape. And this is going on at a time of military collapse of the Kuomintang. So he made the decision to move a portion, about 20% of the items that have come from Beijing and take them with him to Taiwan. Um, but to do that at the same time as moving more than a million soldiers, civil servants and their family members to, to Taiwan on a limited number of ships and planes. So that's why only 20% was moved. And there were only three shipments. So these would be naval ships that took items from uh, Shanghai, Nanjing to Taiwan. So um, they take 20%, go over to Taiwan, and then is it just put in storage? Well, Chiang Kai-shek, of course, didn't plan to stay in Taiwan. It was just a temporary <clears throat> place. He was going to retake the mainland. So, therefore, there was no need to build a big museum. So what they did was they found a good storage space in central Taiwan, and they put the items there, so they were quite safe, quite well looked after. And then they built nearby a very limited exhibition space. But this is uh, in central Taiwan. It's far from the population centers. It's very inconvenient for either Taiwan people or from foreigners to go see them. So this was the case until the 1960s when um, it became apparent that he, he wouldn't be able to come back. So then he and his advisors decided they should build a proper museum in Taipei to, to show off the exhibits. What so happened to the other 80% then? Well, it stayed. Uh, they stayed in in China. So, uh, some are now in the Nanjing Museum, and then some went back to Beijing. So, with this twenty percent, of course, you've been over there recently uh, to Taiwan because they've actually built a second museum. Yes. Well, the first one opened in November nineteen sixty five, and on December twenty ninth last year, they opened the southern branch. But and it's not actually an extension of the, of the northern one because it's called a Museum of Asian Art and Culture. So the idea is to have a different concept from the one in, in Taipei. Taipei just shows you the items from the Imperial Palace. But the southern one is going to show you items from Korea, Japan, Southeast Asia, uh, Iran, India – uh, because they want to have a different, uh, you know, a different offering. Taipei is a classical Chinese building, which could, could easily be in the mainland. I mean, this was the idea of Chiang Kai-shek. But the one in, in the south, in Jiayi, is, is completely different, very avant-garde. The hope is, from the museum, is that they will uh, coordinate the exhibitions and that uh, tourists and Taiwan people will, will go to both. 
Now, Chiang Kai-shek, when he made that decision to take these artefacts uh, to Taiwan in his diary, he doesn't actually give the motives for that, other than so that other people surmise that it was a symbol of his legitimacy as the ruler of China, as he perceived himself. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. I mean, he thought he was the, the, the legal president of China. He called the communist bandits. And it was uh, it was a period of what was called an emergency. So the communist taking of power was an emergency, which would which would end. So when he went to Taiwan, he took China's uh, gold, uh, foreign foreign exchange reserves. He took these art treasures. He also took a huge number of documents from the foreign ministry and other important ministries. These were all the symbols of of central government rule in, in China because he believed that the communist rule would not last and that once the, the Chinese people realized the true nature of the regime, they would revolt against it. So he would be able to come back. That's what he believed. In terms of these artifacts now being there, I mean, that's very interesting historically now that we've got a, um, a very different situation from, say, 70 years ago. But still, um, I mean, how, how is it seen now with these artifacts um, in Taipei and the Second Museum, as opposed to the ones that are in the Forbidden City or elsewhere on the mainland? Well, I put this question to the lady who's the current director in Taipei, and her answer was that when President Jiang moved the items to Taiwan, he was the legal ruler of China, and he was moving the pieces from one part of China to another. So that was a completely legal thing to do. And uh, he, she said that the Beijing government has never formally protested about that, has never said it was theft of items. Now, if he'd moved them to the Philippines or to California, then I think it would be different. But no, it's, it's Taiwan. And also for the government in Beijing, actually, this is a good thing because these items in, in Taipei, they are a symbol of unity because they are a sort of heritage which is shared by people in Taiwan and, and, and China. So actually it would not be good for Beijing if all the pieces were given back, because then, as it were, Taiwan would take a step more toward independence. So what's happened is since President Ma took office in 2008, the two museums have had a lot more contact than they ever had, they ever had before. Beijing Museum has lent pieces to the Taipei Museum. There's been a lot of exchanges, seminars and so forth. Uh, the people from the two sides came together and did a reconstruction of this odyssey that we've talked about, which must have been a very moving thing. They did it together. Make quite a good film, wouldn't it? Oh, yes, make a very good film. However, the pieces from Taiwan have never been to the mainland. So obviously I asked the director about this. And she said to me that there is a standard agreement which they signed with museums in Japan, Austria, America, America, you know, internationally standard agreement. If you lend your pieces to another museum and this agreement stipulates that the, the, the loan is for a certain period of time, at the end of the period the pieces will be taken, will be given back to you. Um, there is clauses about insurance, there are clauses about the safety and security of the pieces and there's also clauses about protection against legal challenge. Because, as you know, in many museums, items came from private homes or uh, booty in war or in the, like the British Museum. Many items were taken from foreign countries. So you have to have a protection that when the piece is not in your museum and it's in another one, it, 
that piece will not then be the subject of a lawsuit, which will prevent it coming back. So this is the standard agreement. But the mainland won't sign this agreement with Taiwan. So, and nor does it recognize the name of the Palace Museum in Taiwan. The name is the National Palace Museum to differentiate it from the Palace Museum in Beijing. But Beijing will not recognize this name because it's got the word national in it. So the two sides can't sign an agreement. So therefore, it will not let any pieces go to mainland, even for a loan. So even though relations are very much better now than they were in 2008, there's been no movement on that front. And I don't see any movement in the near future, and certainly not if Madam Tsai Ing-wen wins, which she's likely to do. So I don't think the pieces from, from Taiwan will, will be lent to any museums in the mainland. My thanks to Mark O'Neill, the author of The Miraculous History of China's Two Palace Museums. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>